I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Thank you for joining me. Uh, Today's episode is one of a mini-series that we're planning for the publication of uh, That Little Voice in Your Head, my third book. Uh, That Little Voice is an attempt to explain to us how our brains work. It was uh, triggered by the idea that I noticed that we humans uh, in the modern world have become better at using our um, digital devices, our phones and computers, than we are at using our brains, which is quite a shocking uh, realization. And so I basically decided that perhaps one good thing I could do for humanity is to explain how our brains work in an analogy to how our computers work. So it's a bit of an analogy between neuroscience and and computer science, if you want, which, believe it or not, holds very, very true because our brains are incredibly predictable, incredibly programmable, and yet we use them with bugs and mistakes. We put the wrong software on them and we run them really badly. And that causes us uh, to struggle in life and to suffer. Uh, This mini-series is going to invite incredible wise thinkers and authors and happiness practitioners to discuss their views of how that brain affects their topic of passion. And today I uh, start with one conversation that I believe is spot on. Of course, you may have been exposed to yoga and meditation in the modern world, as I call it, the California flavor yoga and meditation, which in reality is a knockoff, but not really the truth of what the practice is about. Today with me, I have Nadia Gilani, who has written this, the Yoga Manifesto, which is a beautiful Beautiful. I I don't know if it's a biography or if it's a philosophy book. It really is Nadia's story with yoga and yoga's story with the world. It is an idea of how yoga helped Nadia through, through her life and through some challenging times. But also it's an idea of what yoga itself needs if it was going to save itself and save us today. Nadia is a very uh, successful yoga instructor and yoga seems to be part of every part of her life. Definitely, as we know, yoga is supposed to be there to help us run the code that manages our brains. So Nadia, thank you so much for joining me. Very interesting coincidence, both our books launching on the same day, 26th of May. Yeah, I know. It's so exciting. Yeah, I I look at yours uh, in its uh, beautiful orange color and beautiful, beautiful, vulnerable sharing of the story. Uh, and I, I sort of wish yours will sell more. So I, oh, well, thank you. I, I hope well, it will. I hope they both equally sell loads. Absolutely. I, th- I think it's... Um, I want to go into the story, but first I will have to share with you because it's a manifesto. I really share your view. I, I struggled with yoga for quite some time because the flavors of yoga that I have been exposed to have been in tourist places and 
in California where I live, when I lived there and in New York city. And in a way I always felt there was something missing. There was a bit of a void in what they were trying to teach me. And, and it, in a, in a very interesting way, it almost repulsed me from yoga because it didn't feel real at all. Your story seems to have almost like a romantic comedy, a bit of ups and downs with the story of yoga. Are you open to tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, sure. I'm curious before I do that to find out when you were doing the yoga, like when you, what, you know, what sort of time of year it was, what decades? I started to really focus on yoga after I wrote Soul for Happy. So I, I basically, when I wrote Soul for Happy, my life became very interesting because I started to mix with a lot of the people that are in the happiness community. And some are incredibly wise people and some are trying to find their way. Uh, but yoga and meditation is central to that. So around seven years ago, and uh, basically I find the value in it. I'm actually in, the, in that little voice in your head. I talk deeply about how to train your brain using yoga and meditation. Uh, but I have to say, I admit, I have never really found someone that, that didn't treat it as a business, if I may say that. Yeah, no, it definitely has become a business. And I talk about that quite at length in the book. But I, I mean, the book is kind of how you described it. I often describe it as my relationship with yoga and yoga's relationship with the world. So it, it, it is, you know, part memoir. There is my own personal story going through it. But then I also look out into the world and look at issues in, in the world, that problems that are going on in the world, like economic disparities and social problems, racism, and how actually a lot of yoga, modern yoga, is quite divorced from interacting with these things, you know, because yoga's got an attached philosophy to it. It's not just a workout. It's not a vacuous, empty thing. Um, not saying that exercise isn't a good thing. I mean, we do the postures to purge the body and to cleanse the body and to feel good, right? We do the postures to feel healthy in our bodies, in our minds. We do meditation for the same reason, but that's not all. There's a kind of, we're doing it, it's a means to a greater end, which is enlightenment. Yeah. So I didn't want to write an angry book that was just angry about what's happened. Like you said, you were repulsed. Yeah, sure. I felt the same, but I didn't just want to write an angry book. I wanted to write a book that had hope and I wanted to write a book with meaning and how, um, and to show also how my relationship with yoga has changed because I've not had a love affair with yoga my whole life. I've definitely walked out on it at times and, um, felt let down by it, if you like. And, um, I put all of that in the book. Mm. You were just saying that there are so many events in the world, like economic crisis, like COVID and so on and so forth. And you're saying that yoga should be part of that, should relate to that. That's the first time I hear this at all. Actually. Okay. Tell me a bit more about that. Well, briefly, I mean, there's a chapter in the book where I talk a bit about, I call it the academic chapter, although it's not really, but basically there are um, eight limbs of yoga and they're all meant to be done in a specific order. And um, there are certain things that, you know, in terms of observances and how we should behave. So things like there's one tenet of philosophy, yoga philosophy, which is nonviolence. And a lot of yoga teachers, I don't mean to be unkind, but a lot of yoga teachers sort of talk about how um, they think about not being violent, whereas I'm interested in nonviolence that's active. So what are we actually doing to promote peace in the world? So it's a coincidence that I'm wearing a Black Lives Matter t-shirt. I just noticed. It's, yeah. it, it's a coincidence, actually, because, but I do write about this in the book because the book is coming out after COVID and I was working on the second draft. And so I wrote about um, the murder of George Floyd and I, I found it, 
I mean, I was very upset at the time and I found it really difficult. And I think it was exacerbated because we were all at home and, you know, the world's reaction to it was interesting to see. And then everybody started getting interested in diversity and all these things that I just felt like these are not new things. But the point is, I heard lots of people talk about how great it is to be nonviolent, but actually nonviolent for me is about being active. And we've got so many great examples of that in history with the civil rights movement in America. You know, they weren't passive. It was active nonviolence, you know, and then also in South Asia with the um, British Empire, that was civil disobedience. So Ahimsa for me is about taking action. And I think if you're really going to be properly practicing yoga, we need to think about the world we're living. We need to be engaged in the world that we're living in. Why do you think the world has come to this? I mean, in an interesting way, I, I have my theories on even how COVID itself led to a lot of unattachment, if you want. The fact that we rallied the streets for Black Lives Matter at the time of COVID, honestly, was an anomaly. It seems to me that this was not what was intended when everyone was being locked down. I think there was a, a requirement from the world for people to be locked down. I don't believe it was just a virus, to be honest. Conspiracy theory, everyone. Uh, but no, but, but the truth is, even when that happens, I think what really touches my heart is that it's not yet, it's still not happening. Right. I mean, yeah. we, we have not solved the problem and yet humans are back to work and back to bars and pubs and back to their yoga classes. And we forgot the issue. We forgot the reality that black lives still matter and that black lives are still unjustly treated and that every life in minorities is being treated that way and that we haven't solved our empowerment of the feminine and that there are wars in the world where people are subjected to violence. And humans seem to have forgotten, yoga or not. Why do you think this is happening? Yeah, it's an interesting one. It's something that I've been thinking about as well. I mean, I'm quite astounded by by that return to the pubs and the bars and things because we, you know, we've, this huge thing has happened and we've all been affected by it in different ways. And I'm not the same person. And I do feel quite, I mean, you know, I want to keep this conversation hopeful, but I do... Um, just a reality check, you know, I, I do sometimes like have a look at the world and I think just, just to keep a reality check about it, I, I get quite sad sometimes. I think, gosh, you know, why isn't it different? You know, because yeah. like you said, I felt the same actually. Maybe there was a real need for the world to lock down. It wasn't just the virus because I felt like the world was spinning a bit too fast and the world is on fire in terms of just the earth, in terms of the way that we're living, these 24-hour lives we have and... You know, I don't think I was living in a particularly sustainable way myself. I was stressed all the time. I, you know, I mean, you talk about this and, and you've written about this and, you know, because you've had that experience yourself or your depression and living in a way, they're not really sure why we're living in that way, but just it's the only way we know how. And then you stop, pause, which is lockdown, an example of a global version of that. And then we have time to reflect. And it's not easy when we reflect. You know, it's not easy to look inside your shirt and see what's in there. So maybe people are returning back to what they knew before because it's hard to do that work. I don't know why mm. that's happened, you know, because I mean, I talked to a therapist and there's ups and downs there and um, it's difficult at times. And then I think sometimes when I'm having a nice time in therapy, no, because- <laughs> What <have>. is that? <laughs> well, they have been, I think, because I, I was having a tricky time recently and I said to him, you know, I feel like I'm going backwards. And my therapist said to me, you know, I think maybe we were getting a bit comfortable mm. because I was kind of starting to- 
enjoy in the sense that mean that, oh, things are making sense and I was getting a bit comfortable. And then we was, we turned a corner, I think, and then a few weeks ago, and it was kind of like, oh, that was a bit difficult. I'm really confused again. And what do I do now? And I think that's where the work is, mm. where we sort of hit that kind of point. And we have to go through that. And I write about that in the book. And I, and I, I know you've talked about this a lot. I think it's spot on. The fact, one of the answers I tell the whole world, and I'm open about it, that I've been struggling with that concept that I feel is very important for my soul, which is a, a concept I call half monk, to find time to reflect and avoid the, the 25 hour days, not necessarily as a monk, but at least as a half monk, 50% of my time. I've been questioning and with my wonderful daughter, Aya, who's here today. Hello, Aya. <laughs> we were chatting about the idea of maybe I can invest in a farm somewhere and be a little bit off the grid and, you know, not all the time, but of course I have still have a very busy life. And I kept asking myself, why am I not doing this? And the answer was what you said. I don't know anything else. I've lived my entire life in the mainstream through the corporate world. It was the, the maximum speed. And then now, even as I'm working on my happiness mission, I still have that skill set within me. It's a very good skill set. It enables you to reach billions and, you know, it's really, really powerful, but it's not the way we humans are supposed to be. And I, you know, that brings me a little bit back to yoga. When, when yoga wasn't the thing you do after work, when yoga wasn't the thing that you go and buy Lululemon pants for, when yoga was an integral part of the lives of people who were rich, poor, in the farms, or there were no yoga studios to think about it. Tell us a little bit about that point in history. Yoga being part of life rather than yoga being the, the brand that you wear after you go through life. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm really interested in modern life and how yoga in interacts with modern life. I'm more than going back into, I don't believe that yoga should be practiced the way that it was 100,000 million years ago. I mean, I've got a very liberal approach to the practice myself. And when I say that, I mean that I'm looking at the practice in terms of how it can be applied to modern life, how it relates to modern life, which is why I was talking about, you know, nonviolence, for example. And some of the other tenets we look at is truth, is another one that's really important to me. Um, and I think about, you know, what that means in, in terms of my life. But in the, in the olden days, if, if you like, yoga is a way to... It's about reaching enlightenment and about living a good way for yourself and order and, and in order for to live well so that everybody else is in harmony. We're in harmony with the universe. In lots of ways, yoga is a philosophy for life, the way that religion gives guidance to people. It's not that different. It's just another way. I think people have faith to guide them and show them the way and to give them something to believe in. Yoga's that as well. It gives you a framework. And so, but you don't have to, I don't, same as you, actually, maybe I, I'd never thought about it in the monk capacity, but actually, same as you, I've been on a, most of my life searching, searching for belonging, searching for guidance and looking to faiths, looking to Buddhism. I had a Muslim upbringing and that wasn't enough. I needed to keep looking. I'd look at congregations outside mosques and really want that, but I didn't feel part of it. Yoga was there and just always looking and maybe part of me is kind of more at peace now. And I think the book has come at a good time and this conversation is coming at a good time. So I'm very grateful for where I am now because it's not just yoga that sustains me anymore. It's, it's an amalgam of so many things. And I think that yoga is an inspira it's like an inspiration for me, but it's something that I think about a lot. I think what's missing in modern yoga is when people have attacked me, because I have been attacked by trolls for some of the things I've written, 
and it's been really unpleasant, but often people un- attack me and say that I'm being violent because of things I'm saying that are critical. But actually, I think I'm just thinking and doing an analysis and questioning. Yeah. And I believe we should question everything. We should question our faith. Um, that's the way that I was brought up in with the Islamic faith anyway. It was like, question it. What are your big questions about the Quran? Not, this is the rule book, which, you know, maybe some people do it that way and that's fine, but that's not the way that I was taught. And I guess it's one of the biggest burdens of my life that I have so many questions, but it's also, I think, what moves me forward. We need to ask questions of yoga. Very interesting. I mean, one of my the thoughts that I ponder myself all the time is if if you're a, a religious person and you're following a certain teaching and so you believe in a certain book, a certain prophet, if the idea was, okay, here is a user manual, use that book, the faith, it wouldn't teach you to follow the prophet. And every faith I know is Buddhist will say, behave like Buddha, Islam will say, behave like Muhammad. And the idea is if you look at the way those prophets have led their life, they questioned everything. They literally, you know, Buddha left his whole life behind and basically went and explored himself as he walked the world until he sits under the tree. Muhammad went and sat in a cave for months and months to try and reflect. Moses had to walk the desert. And, I suspect and, they yeah. weren't happy. Like Buddha yeah, wasn't Buddha happy. Mountain, Buddha, yeah. Buddha was aware of how much suffering there was in the world. They, they were questioning people, which is why I want to learn from people who go on that journey. I'm interested in people who mess up, who make mistakes, who contemplate and think rather than people who are just spouting the, and again, I don't, this is not to be unkind. This is just saying it as I'm less interested in people who have read the books and are kind of spouting. The book says I'm interested in people who have integrated and thought this is what it means to me. And that's what I've done in the book because that's hopefully more relatable, but also I need to, I need to kind of make it work for me. And the only way I'm going to do that is to, and you do that, you do that with your writing and in your life and you put yourself in your books. And those are the books that I like reading where people put themselves in the books rather than, I mean, I know that you've got quite a mathematical scientific mind. <laughs> That's myself for sure. And I, I, I do not. I put that not. 100% in my books. <laughs> you're very scientific in your formula and I'm fascinated by that because I am not like that. And I've always, oh, no, I'm, I'm not like that at all. I'm very chaotic, very sort of, I suppose we're both creative in different ways. Like I don't, I think and I, that's how it should be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very messy. It's very, you know, I'm very blue sky thinking, very big, wide. And somehow in the, through the madness, this comes out of it. And you, I've heard about your writing process because I've heard you talk about that. And, you know, it's very strategic. You write the last line. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is, <laughs> I don't know where I'm going. You know, I have a rough idea and, and the thing is it works for me and I found my way and, you know, your way isn't the right way. My way isn't the right way. But it's great that we're talking and we're learning from yeah. each other. And yeah, I mean, one one of my uh, next books, which is hopefully out the end of the year, I'm writing with a with a co-author, a wonderful young lady, stress management expert here in the UK, Alice Law. And Alice writes like you. She has something in her heart, and she pours that on the paper. And I write like almost a mathematician. Like if you asked me to write a book, and I could manage to confine the book to the number forty-two. I'll probably do that. You know, you have a 200 page book that has one page on it that says 42. That's it, right? That's all we need really in my mind. But the experience of writing together is actually quite liberating for me because as I read Alice's work, I promise you almost every second page, I go like, where is she going with this? Like in my my structured mind, I need a bullet point as an anchor to know where I am. And then eventually every second page I go like, 
I gasp like really, oh my God, that feels amazing. I, I didn't understand it in my head. I felt it in my heart. And that's a very, very, very valuable skill, if you ask me. And I think from your writing that you're that way, you're, you also somehow have that beautiful, no filter approach to things. You're like simply, I am fairly unfiltered, yeah. yeah. But but with you know there is obviously in order to write a book, this is my first time. I mean, I have a very tangential mind and brain. You might have noticed that in some of my responses, I do sometimes go off on tangents, and I write that way. And it's really really unhelpful to me that I write that way because it it's a longer process. It means that I have to go back and keep to the point so the reader doesn't get lost because you can't just you can't just give a reader that you know you have to kind of tidy it up and make it better but I do love the editing process I know that you oh yeah that's quite extensively yeah yeah I did remember I think I think I heard you say that you prefer the writing process and the editing is grinding challenging the first edit is is actually part of the writing so so normally normally what I do is I I write way more than I publish I you know my fourth book is coming out end of the year I'm now, uh, I've written at least seven and a half books and I don't publish a lot of it. So what I do is I write first, then I look at the book and I rewrite it, almost rewrite it. I don't retype everything. I cut and paste and move things around, but the structure and the coherence becomes a lot better. And I think that that process of the, the first edit is the most joyful. I love that. Yeah. I love right? it. it. It really makes, yeah. it takes the information and turns it you into see the, And you see it. Yeah, you see the big picture. The shape is there and totally, I mean, you've been through it more yeah. than me, but, but totally I had that. But yeah, I'm pretty unfiltered. People always say that to me. And it's interesting because... I guess I am. I'm really about keeping it real. I don't think I know it, going back to the idea of like not knowing any other way. I think I don't really know how to be guarded really, but I think I always know, like I know what I've left out of the book. I know what I took out and there's lots of stuff that I talk really openly about, but I've been quite careful because I talk about my relationship with, well, my mother's in the book quite a bit. And, you know, I was quite thoughtful about what I exposed about my life that was going to then expose her and um, there's also some certain things that I wrote about my life that are really difficult, but I didn't want it to be a slashing wrist in public situation because I don't think that's helpful. I'm solution focused. So I like to talk about the problems if it's if it's going to mean that I can, you know, dwell a bit more on the solution and also share enough of my difficulty and pain in order to let people know that they're not alone. But then that's beautiful. But it doesn't have to be, you know, I, I do really love the Oscar Wilde quote, you know, that we're all in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars. <laughs> I, I do really love that because, you know, there's hope, but I don't need to turn, kind of drag you into the gutter with me. I can just sort of tell you about, you know, what it was like there. And it was really hard, but there's hope. And that's really key. The key thesis, I guess, in the book, the hope is, I like to think that there's a lot of hope in there. And some of the people who've read the book already, the early editions, the early proofs have sort of said that they've, they've kind of got that. And I'm really pleased that I managed to communicate that. So why is it a manifesto? Why do you call it the yoga manifesto? Well, it's a good word. and um, It really is. And I'm surprised that nobody wrote a book with that title before. You know, someone should have grabbed that title. Do you know, it came about because, again, I mean, COVID was going on forever, wasn't it? And I guess um, when we were coming out of lockdown, I had been on Instagram mainly. I was writing about some of the ideas in the book on social media um, and it just took off. People got really interested in some of the things that I was writing about. And I guess because I like to keep, I have to keep things interesting because I get bored. So I can't just keep talking about the same things again and again. And I just, I'm known as the yoga dissident on Instagram. And I just basically, one day I just wrote 
the Yoga Distance Manifesto. And I think a year later, when I'd finished the first draft, I was still without a title. And I had so many different titles. Gosh, I was lying awake at night thinking about titles. <laughs> so it's like calling, you know, finding a name for your child. Really. Isn't it, it hard? Cool? Yeah, yeah. Looking at titles on what I visited my mother, I was looking at her houses full of books and I was looking at titles for inspiration, I was listening to music. And then there it was, it was staring at us one day. Some a te- Somebody, at the publisher said, what about the Yoga Manifesto? And I thought, oh my gosh, it was already there mm. on my Instagram. And um, it's always the way, isn't it? Like the simplest thing. I had to go through all the different, because nothing was right, nothing was quite right. But the reason, in answer to your long-winded see, I do do that, sorry, tangential. But in answer to your question, the reason why I called it the manifesto is because I, it's very much a personal story about me, but it does then look outwards into the world. And then, well, what am I going to leave with the reader? I wanted to give the reader something. You can't just close the book and think, well, that's that then. Yoga's great and what the world's done to it's awful. The end. I needed to. That's a good story. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know if it is like you can't leave. I think it's, you don't want people to shut it and think, oh God, this book. I need this kind of the hope. So the manifesto is about hope. It's about, but it's not, I suppose the only thing that, you know, there is a risk of maybe, maybe not because the blurb at the back explains it or the blurb on the inside cover explains it, but it's not telling people what to do. I've got inspired by the eight limbs. So I've got eight pillars. They're not necessarily steps actually like the eight limbs are meant to be done in order, but these are eight limbs and eight pillars for um, eight ideas for things that people can do to maybe improve yoga in the world. And they're meant for inspiration because I don't like telling people what to do. I'm very careful about that in the book. Like I, I sort of talk about how I think things should be, but then I, you know, I'm not copying out, but I'm not telling, I don't want to tell you what to do because people do sometimes ask me, what shall I do? And I sort of think, no, that's your job. I'm here to tell you I'm working, you know, I've, I've been sitting here thinking um, and doing and writing and living my life and having difficult experiences as a yoga teacher and questioning things and working it out for myself. And I'm sharing my story to help you work it out for yourself. But I want you to do that work. I'm, I'm just going to give you some ideas for things that might work, but not everything's going to work everywhere. So let, let's focus on yoga a little bit. So I actually don't know what the eight limbs are. You shared two, but I mean, I don't know if you'll remember all eight of them off your head. I'll try and do it. Uh So I talk about them. So, you know, uh, the eight limbs are, um, I call it in the book, actually, a prescription for moral conduct and self-discipline. So yoga is a discipline. But like in Buddhism, you know, there are guidances and we have, I'm really interested in Zen. And we have in the tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh, I talk about him in the book, actually. And he talks, there are the five mindfulness trainings. And there are five things for you know way to live your life and things that are good to do but they're kind of suggestions and this is kind of the way here as well so these are suggestions it's not like if I of course I say things that are maybe a bit aggressive sometimes and you know I don't get it right all the time but these are things that we look for for inspiration so the yamas have there are five guidelines and we've got ahimsa which is non-violent satya which is truthfulness I really like that one asteya which is non-stealing but again I turn that around quite a lot and think about what does it mean actively so maybe not taking more than my share, fair share, maybe giving generously. Oh, beautiful. Mm. Paying people if we fairly, if we're responsible for that. The ah at the beginning of these Sanskrit words means, negates it. So that it's asteya, non-stealing. But I'm interested in, as I say, really interested in active. Actively make, doing an action around that. Yeah. yeah, I just think that's more important. I don't, practice is active. It's not a passive thing. It's a verb, isn't it? So well, I suppose it's a noun as well when we're talking about yoga practice, but. 
Brahmacharya, which is the right use of energy. So it's often, this is often linked to sex, but, and I guess you could think about, you know, the way we have our relationships and thinking about treating people fairly and, and being kind to ourselves in relationships we get into. But I think it's also about not burning ourselves out. I've definitely done that in life burning the candle. And I think I have a tendency for that. So it's about keeping an eye on it. I'm very sort of like all or nothing. So, you know, I just kind of keep going, keep going, keep going. And then I crash and I need to know, okay, it's time to just pause, recharge the battery. And then, but you know, the, a wise person doesn't do that. A wise person would be right with their energy all the time. So, you know, I'm on the journey. Uh, non-greed is the next one. And then we've got four niyamas, which is cleanliness, like I mentioned, contentment, which is very lovely. Difficult, challenging one, but really wonderful when you get it, when you get moments of that. Tapas, which is one of my favourites, and that means a lot to me, which is austerity, and I like to think of it as transformation. I really believe in the power of transformation now. I've seen it happen in my own life. I didn't believe in it for a long time. Asvadhyaya, which is self-study. And then quickly, the other limbs, we've got asana, which is the postures. Pranayama, which uh, deals with breath control. Pratyahara, which is sense withdrawal. So that's not so... Sense, withdrawal? Withdrawal, yeah. So that's not necessarily so straightforward, but I like to think of it as sometimes if I'm getting flustered in London, where I live, with all the people and the noise and it's getting a bit, uh, I, a very basic way of me maybe practicing that is to kind of just lower my gaze to minimize all the external distractions mm. and to listen to my breath. So I just slow my breath down and I listen to the, sounds I might listen to and then I might move in and listen to the sound closest to me which is my breath and that's really basic but it works for me and it just returns me back I, to I, here. I, I think it applies to everything over stimulation in general in our world today you know you come back home from a very busy day and what you what you do you switch Netflix on and you have your phone in your hand and you're doing six things at the same time yeah that's like the extreme opposite of of this, of shutting down, sh yeah, just closing really, in. Yeah. And, and it prepares you for meditation because all of this is designed to help us for meditation. So sense withdrawal leads to concentration. Mm. Um, and again, we do that. It's different to meditation because meditation is when you move into that through concentration. And then number eight, I did actually question whether this actually even existed for a long time, but it's enlightenment, samadhi. And, um, I don't believe that samadhi is a permanent state. I believe that I've had moments of samadhi in my life. It's like nirvana, like having moments of, oh my gosh, you know, uh, eureka moments or, you know, when you know, when you have that, when all the planets are aligned and everything is, all the stars are growling because it's all coming and it's going to happen. And when you have that feeling, I think that's samadhi. I think that's just enlightenment. You know, when you know that you're, when you've got the guidance, you must that's have that. That's probably true. I mean, I, I, in, yeah. in, my, in my view, I believe that your soul is always enlightened, right? So your soul always knows. And enlightenment really is a moment where you have managed to switch off from your attachment to the physical enough to be able to connect to your soul in a way where your soul will tell you something. And your soul is not just your soul, it's all of being. It's all that is out there that is non-physical that we can connect to. I mean, in my, in my view of my experience of losing my son, for example, I've had many, many, many conversations, not just signs, like almost real conversations with my son, who is a being that's part of the universal consciousness, if you want, that is able to connect in moments of enlightenment if you allow it in. I want to go to number seven, uh, concentration, because in that little voice in your head, in my third book, 
coming out by the same time as yours. I call this deliberate attention. And deliberate attention, believe it or not, is linked. I've done a, a lot of research. There is a lot of actual neuroscientific research that almost all of the well-known extreme mental health conditions are associated with the lack of deliberate attention. So anything from depression to PTSD to, of course, ADHD is at the, at the Even beginning. Even psychosis? And some and some not, but many of the, of the conditions that are sort of mentally relatable to mental health basically are stemming, stemming from the fact that people will have, there will be a very high correlation with the fact that this person is unable to pay, to concentrate. Okay. And our brains, there was a study in Stanford that basically talks about the fact that when you let your brain loose in terms of incessant thinking, the brain's tendency is to go a lot more into the negative side of incessant thinking. And you can see that you don't need a study for that, right? That when you, when you're sitting down, you're rarely ever, even in your lunch break or having a cup of coffee, you're rarely ever saying, oh, that's so amazing. Yesterday I did this and it was wonderful. And tomorrow I might be doing that. And it's wonderful. Most of the time, this incessant thinking is simply just just telling you, oh, this is going to go wrong and that was horrible and I hate this and I don't like that. And that negativity basically can be reduced drastically when you start to pay deliberate attention. And yoga and meditation are at the core of that, at the core of the practice that trains your brain to be able to pay that attention so that you can get out of the negative mental conditions. As you describe yoga now, again, I'm going to say this with love and respect, even my wonderful ex, Nibel, has a, a beautiful fitness center in Dubai and they teach yoga the, you know, sometimes the real way, but sometimes the California way, right? It's like There's like, lots of the California way there. I've ab seen it. Ab yeah. Absolutely, right? Yeah. You, you know, and people come and they, they get together, Lululemons, everyone, and, you know, we will use some Sanskrit words. And yeah, it's not really what you're describing at all. It's none of those eight limbs. It's restricted to the studio. It doesn't go outside the meditation room. And in your book, you talk about, I should say, of course, by the way, in Nibel's fitness center, she also has the real yoga. She, also, she has amazing teachers that I know uh, that are really, really taking the practice properly just so that she doesn't get upset with me. But, uh, but uh, and because she's wonderful. No, but, but the idea is that it is very rare to come across a yoga teacher or a yoga studio that will take you through the whole practice. That would probably more be of us, you know, like a spiritual temple sort of, right? Yeah. And in your book, you talk about the darker side of the industry. Give me a few examples. What went wrong? So the darker side is kind of what you touched on, really. It's sort of like the fact that commercialization and capitalism and how yoga has been distorted to, in a way that's kind of become unrecognizable but you see just before I go into that more just what you've said of course I mean yoga studios can't do the whole thing you know they've got a business to run and they're gonna we can't maybe necessarily expect them to just cover everything so when people go to a practice go to a class you know I suppose what, what could be done is to make it kind of form part of a bigger thing so people go to the practice like you know you might go to mosque or church to kind of be with others who practice the same way as you but then you've, you're on your own journey. And I think um, the thing with, there's so many different styles of yoga and I write about, write about them and I take, you know, I'm not always the kindest about some of them. And I suppose that's 
all of the, there's so many different styles of yoga and I'm always having people come to me and say they're confused by the difference between them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a few different styles or methods, I suppose I call them um, roots of to practice that emerged in South Asia, different ways of practicing the same thing. And that I talk about uh, 23 in the book, but there are loads that have been invented by Western Westerners, people in the Western world, a lot actually from America. And I think it's because people have gone traveling and they've liked the practice, the physical practice, because it feels amazing. All these weird shapes we do, that's what I fell in love with. The gateway for the practice for a lot of us is the physical shapes and the postures. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But then to acknowledge that there's more to it and it's for your benefit. Actually, you're going to win. Like I say, I'm not interested in being a nun or following a set of rules. I like ripping things up. I like tearing things apart and questioning, going back to that idea of questioning everything. And I do that with the yoga. You know, I'm, I don't agree with everything mm. in the philosophy. I'm not blindly following it all. You know, I'm interested in it because it fascinates me because it opens my mind to away from the negative thinking actually like talking about what you're saying you know it's sorry i've gone off the point but but that's the dark side the dark side is the money making the dark side is the whiteness and the lack of diversity the dark side is traveling i mean when i went to bali before the pandemic came to the uk it's so separate there there's indonesians working in these yoga studios who are not benefiting from this wellness culture that has ended up in bali and Bali has got yoga studios, which are full of, full of travelers and full of Westerners, but they're not kind of giving, it's not benefiting the local people. That's a dark side to me. That's a very dark side. That's not to be ignored. I mean, I, actually we can avoid this if you want to, but you say the whiteness, is it, I mean, everyone's free to practice yoga. Everybody's free to practice yoga. And, you know, I, of course you can practice yoga if you're white and of course you can teach it. I just think that it's become quite dominated by, I think one of the other, another one of the darker sides is the fact that the slim limbed, bendy, often blonde kind of image we see of yoga is not it. I mean, of course there's going to be people who look like that, who practice yoga that way. Great. Do it. And the handstands are, they do exist in yoga, but that's not the only thing. I've taught yoga with refugees and in community centers where we were cramped, doing strange shapes with our bodies. And in some ways they were doing like the real practice because they were often wearing really clothes that were really not easy for them to move around in. And we, but we did a kind of more honest practice. We would concentrate, we would meditate, we would do these strange things that were really uncomfortable to do. And we weren't kind of sipping green juices and taking handstands on beaches. And, you know, do you know what I mean? That's the kind I of thing. I love what you're saying. The whiteness really thing do. is because I stole from, there's a few puns in the book and a few, I like playing with words and the unbearable lightness of being. I, I just kind of talk about the unbearable whiteness of yoga in the book and, and it's that that I've just described. It's a shocking fact actually. This word caught my attention because I I just watched a documentary on Netflix called White Hot about Abercrombie and yeah and, yes. and, and Finch. It was shocking really how somehow the marketing of fashionable things we've had the story with Victoria's Secret and so on and so forth tends to be very, very uninclusive. And for some reason, you're right. And we, we accept that in a way. And I think it's quite interesting. 
I don't know if that's true, but it's quite, it would be quite interesting to, if we really wanted yoga to deliver what it's supposed to deliver to the world, it has to be welcoming for everyone, shouldn't it be? I it has mean, to be welcoming for everyone and inclusive for everyone. And that goes back to the philosophy, because the philosophy about non-stealing, you know, that's oh, what I meant. That's such a beautiful way of saying it. But that's what I meant about the generosity. I, I spin it around in terms of what can we do when we look at our businesses? Are we paying people fair? I mean, I don't have a business, but I'm just saying, you know, and how we treat people, thinking about that and who's missing? Are we only serving a few people or are we serving more people? I think, like you say, it's kind of, we do accept this, but we accept many ills in the world. We accept racism. You know, I personally don't, but we live in a world where it's going on. We live in a world where we live in, I live in a country that is in denial about institutional racism. I was born here. And I think that's because it's hard to look at that. But in order to move forward, you have to reconcile with the difficult things you've done. And I mean, I'm not here to do a, a bashing of the British Empire, but you know, it did some terrible things. And the only way to kind of make, to reconcile that is to, Look at it in the way perhaps Germany did that with its own past. And I think if we look at yoga, you know, in a way it's, it's, I suppose in one way we could say that it's been colonized because it's serving a small number of people rather than the many. And I want it to be for anyone. I'm not saying everybody should practice yoga, by the way, because it's not going to work. It's not going to be for everyone. And I, like I say, I certainly walked out on it and I certainly had moments where I, it wasn't working for me. But if people want it in their life, they should have it in their life. And I think the only way that they're going to make that decision is if we show it to them, put it in front I, uh, of more people. You're clearly a yoga activist, a yoga gangster. Do you know, I, yeah. well, do you know, that's a fun thing to say, isn't it? I mean, I, I think, I mean, I'm, I've got quite a punk ethos and I, like I say, I like tearing things up and I do that in the book. I tear up the industry and then I put it back together, but in a new order, or maybe I think about, maybe we destroy that and we build a new one, mm. but it's, I don't know about activism because I've, I've really look up to activists, you know, like I named, you know, I thought the civil rights movement in America and, you know, we look at the civil disobedience in colonized India. I mean, I, that's a lot of work and I don't know whether, I don't know whether I really qualify as an activist, but I am, oh, yes, you do. I do have a lot of opinions. I do <laughs> yes, have a lot of opinions and I, I talk well, about them. Yeah. Yes, you do. I mean, in, in an interesting way, I, I have to say, I've never really looked at it this way, honestly, because as you rightly said, I, I think the bendy body shapes has been really what was sold to me. And my body is not very bendy anyway. So, and yeah. So did you think then that yoga wasn't for you? Not made absolutely. for people like you? Absolutely. Well, yeah, that's yeah. a problem. Yeah, absolutely. I, I work with lots of men yeah. who have um, football or injuries from football yeah, exactly. and things that's like that. Yeah, that's my past. That's yeah. your past, right? Yeah, absolutely. And then they tentatively, and I've ended up with some people, I've, I've had like men coming to my classes and then... And they stay. I'm glad because I, I like to think that I'm inclusive. And I've worked with people privately who um, have so much strength in their upper body, men again. And they get go. quite despondent because they think, oh, I can't do it. And then I have to kind of, because I'm always at odds calling myself a yoga teacher, really, because I'm just somebody on the journey as well. But I am there to kind of guide them. And I sort of have to kind of try and show them that there's nothing wrong with you. This is your body. Thank you for saying that. There's nothing wrong with you. And actually, if anything, I've spent my life trying to get stronger. And then there's people I work with who are stronger, men, women as well. But, you know, there are men who are stronger. And actually, we're going to work with flexibility for you. And I'm working on strength. Mm. But also, 
looking internally, thinking about Becky, that little voice in your head, and looking at how you deal with the postures, because actually there's somebody I work with who really pushes a lot, strives, ex-lawyer, unsurprising, very, I was better at this last week. And I have to remind him, permit me for saying, we're here to observe. Mm -hmm. And I'm somebody who's very much like him, actually, who's got that tendency to keep pushing and pushing and, oh, I could do that last time. And But actually, I'm really grateful again for being further down the journey where I notice it. And I think, hang on a second, you're doing that again. Okay, then just go ahead and do it. Sometimes I just let myself. But then other times I think, well, you know, remember what it is. Remember what the practice and remember that this is an opportunity to learn and maybe soften. Because mm. my tendency is to push. But like you said earlier in the conversation, you know, your tendency is to, you, that's what you know. Yeah. It would be easier for you to keep doing that. But you're on the journey. Same, you're on the same journey as I am because you're asking these questions and you're interrogating that little voice. And that's going to be your way out of this and maybe finding the farm one day, not to live on the farm permanently, because I don't think I'm ever going to be happy living on a mountain like a hermit, even though I love the idea of it. I like going on retreat, love it. It charges me up, but I need other people mm -hmm. and I need the buzz and I mm -hmm. need these conversations and I need, um, yeah, I need other people. I, I wouldn't survive. I'd probably die. It's incredible, but I, it I, is. I, I'd, I'd be doing fine. Would you? <laughs> Would you? I mean, I, I'd probably produce a book every month and a half. Yeah. And, and I couldn't then, be with my thoughts for all that oh, time. Oh, let leave me with my thoughts, please. Well, that's an admirable thing. Oh, my God. So let's link those two. I'll say this very interestingly. I Yesterday, I was talking at the YPO global event. Amazing thinkers and very successful people, two, three hundred people in the room. What's the YPO? Young President's Organization. And... Of course, I, you know, I spoke about my typical foundation of happiness, understanding the happiness equation and so on. But then I spoke a lot about some of the content in that little voice, the idea of the wrong inputs into our brain, the polarity of the feminine and the masculine, the, what I call the happiness flow chart and so on. And uh, at the end of the session, someone came to me, a gentleman from India, his face looked like an angel. Clearly, he knows peace. He, kn he knows peace. And then he walked to me slowly, unlike the others, and then put his hand on my shoulder and said, you're a yogi. And the first answer that came to my head, I didn't say it out loud, is, of course I'm not, right? But then I asked him, what do you mean? And he said, you think like a yogi, you act like a yogi. I'm not, I, I didn't do a single bendy pause on the, on the stage. What does that mean? I think he means that you're on the journey because... People often, I, I mean, I, because yogi has become like a, you know, not a dirty word, but because it's been so distorted, I've never really described myself as a yogi. But I suspect he means that you're on a journey, you're on the path, because I think maybe when we reach enlightenment, there's this idea that it stops. What do we do when we get there? Which <laughs> exactly. is why I think we have some of the moments of enlightenment through our lives. And it shows us the way, like we might turn left here, we might turn right. You know, we might not go into that relationship or into that job. You know, these are moments of glimmers of wisdoms that we have. And um, I suspect that's what he meant. So how, how does yoga relate to that little voice in your head? I mean, what does it do to our little voice? That's an interesting question. Hmm. I think yoga would be, I mean, in, for meditation, I often come people, have people who come to me and they say, oh, I can't meditate. I can't sit still. And I say to them, well, yeah, I couldn't sit still for ages either. For years, we learn to sit still by sitting still. 
is what I usually <laughs> tell them. Yeah. Because I had thoughts blaring and I kept running away, kept running away. I didn't want to do meditation. I didn't want to sit still. It was just too painful. And I suppose Becky is blaring in your head, potentially for many of us, the little voice in your head. And it's such a flaw. It's almost like a curse, isn't it? That why have we been wired this way towards the negative? But okay, just we have to accept. For survival. For survival, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what it is, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And we've got this thing now and we need to kind of antagonize it and kind of question it. I feel like I'm questioning it all the time. But meditation is actually the space between, I think. It's actually about observing Becky. And, you know, we often use our breath to focus on. And we often use, like in yoga, there's the third eye, which is the seat of our wisdom. And it's meant to be here. And you can just send the internal gaze there if you close the eyes. But sometimes, you know, I just, like I said, when I lower my gaze, I keep the eyes open to just minimize the external distractions. Look at my breath. And sometimes I look at the thoughts if they're so loud and I can't take myself away from them, but I look at the breath, the thoughts might be coming up. You look at them, you take yourself back to the breath. And it's about creating space, I think. And I think over time, I mean, I speak about that quite a lot, actually, in that little voice in your head. I need permission to quote you on what you said. We we learn to sit still by sitting still. I think so. That's the truth. That's the ultimate truth of neuroplasticity, which is exactly how things are. If you've not sat still all your life, you've been training yourself to not sit still. And I, I think this goes back to your, uh, your, your point about being actively engaging and practicing. The idea is, yes, sitting still is a skill. And if you, if you constantly are refusing that skill, you're learning another skill, which is to jump up and down all over the place. And by practicing sitting still, you get that skill over time. And, you know, neuroplasticity works in every, in every possible way. I cite Matthew Ricard in my book, one of my favorite humans on the planet and probably one of the best known monks. He was a guest here on season one. If you haven't heard the episode, please go back and listen to it. And Matthew basically was uh, brain scanned in MRI machines while he was meditating and his brain behaved very different than, different than normal humans. You know, his prefrontal cortex, his insula were configured differently. They were bigger than the average human. They functioned differently than the average human. And that's neuroplasticity. That's 60,000 hours of lifetime meditation for him. But, but those hours, whatever the hours, even if 10 minutes a day, they start to reshape the way you do things. And I think that makes a mega difference. So let me end with a couple of questions. First, you said it's a book of hope. So I have to admit in this conversation, you truly gave me hope. Like I'm actually curious about yoga again. I'm really pleased. Yeah. And I think there is something in the beauty of what you described in terms of this is a discipline. This is not an hour in the studio, right? This is a lifestyle. If you want it starts from your cleanliness of your body and thoughts all the way to being with a community that wants to find enlightenment. I think that's beautiful in every way. You say you you have eight ideas to bring hope back to yoga. So give me your first top two, top three. Yeah, there's quite a few different ideas in the book and I will just open them to remind myself. Again, like I said earlier, I'm not here to tell people what to do, but I look at different areas that we can So I guess because I spend so much time talking about the wellness industry and I'm talking about businesses and big heavyweights, we've named some brands earlier. So I've got businesses, brands and social media influencers. So people with power, ideas, that things that they could do. 
And I think they could look at their branding, they could look at the, you know, marketing, the way that the, the narrative that they're telling, and also looking internally at going back to the non-stealing idea, thinking about paying people fairly and all that kind of thing. Yeah, to live as per the ethos of yoga. Yeah. So if, you, if, if you're branded with yoga, at least live as per that ethos. Well, I think that's a no-brainer, isn't it? Should mm. be. I mean, I think it's, there shouldn't be any irony here. There needs to be live by, I think you've got to walk the talk. Yeah, but I think that's also up to us as consumers, right? Yeah. So if you want to be branded with real yoga, demand that the brands that you use are actually living as per the ethos of yoga. I think that's wonderful. Yeah, and I think that's actually, this is one of the things in the book as well. So I do a little call to action to students, and that would be people like you and I, practitioners, people who follow the discipline of, of the practice, who to question more and to kind of think about where we practice yoga, which businesses are we upholding? You know, are we in the same way that we might kind of think about where our meat comes from if we eat meat or think about where our, um, where we buy our goods from, avoiding sweatshops and thinking about just thinking about, you know, what your yoga is, is kind of doing in the world and uh, where you're getting it from, who you're learning from. I think question your teachers. I'm happy for people to come and ask my questions because I've had a, I spent a lot of my life, you know, listening to that little voice in my head, being unhappy. And I've, I think, and I've written about that in the book. And um, I think um, teachers who pretend that they don't have Becky going on in their heads <laughs> or teachers who, you know, I, I would question that. I would mm. question that, you know, mm. we all have this stuff Absolute. coming up. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, teachers and teach trainings. So there are, I don't know if you're aware, but there are hundreds of teach trainings all over the world going on all the time. And you can actually train to be a yoga teacher in 30 days, which I'm very, I just cannot get my head around that, given the responsibility that it is as a job. You know, you're kind of taking care of people. I don't think you can kind of do that in 30 days. So I think people who offer teach trainings need to think about the way that they offer them, maybe think about what they are teaching on them. And also thinking about when they take people on to do the trainings, because a lot of people go to do trainings for careers. I did my teach trainings. I've done a couple. The first one was just because I wanted to deepen my study and I wanted to be with others who were studying. And the second one was for the same reason. I didn't go straight out and start teaching yoga. In fact, I didn't actually want to teach yoga. It sort of happened by accident. So I think people need to take people on to their trainings who've done a bit of the work first, mm. Mm. because... I use a lot of my own personal experience in my when I teach because, again, I don't really want to just follow the rule book and I want to talk about this is what works for me. You try it. But then I like it when people tell me back, I like doing this. I want to learn from you. So I think it's good for people who are offering trainings to think about what they're offering, who they're taking on, but then also teachers, we might think about where we offer our services, who we're teaching, and also think about communities where yoga isn't offered and of course, we've got, we've got to make a living, but that's where we can think creatively about collaborating. You mm. know, why don't we, I would love to work with a brand and then we could then go and find hard to hard to reach, so-called hard to reach communities who, or communities that are deliberately silenced, I like to say, or pushed out like these refugee groups I was working with who could fund it. That's an ethical thing that a big business could do. That way they make their money, but then mm. they put their money where their yoga is, you know? Oh, beautiful. I have to say, I really enjoyed this conversation. I'll, I'll, I'll close with my typical question. If you had one secret to happiness you want to share with our listeners, what would your secret be? Um, that's, a, that's a really difficult question. Of course it is. It's right the most the difficult end. question on the planet. 
I'm going to answer that by saying, you know, something that I came to recently was, I think for me, it's about looking for peace. And for me, I don't know whether happiness is the way for me, really. I think it's about peace. And I think yeah, a for big... me as well, it's calm, peaceful and contentment. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think for me, I have spent so long wanting peace and thinking I'll never find it. And I think I've, the secret is if you want peace, you've just got to live peacefully. And it's like sitting still. If you want to learn to sit still, sit still. So I think the secret is for peace is to just choose peaceful ways, go gently and practice living peacefully. That's what I'm trying to do. That's so wonderful. Honestly, I loved this conversation. I hope uh, all of you have enjoyed it as much as I did. Consider uh, that little voice in your head and the yoga manifesto. We're here at Pan Macmillan. Thank you guys so much for the room, beautiful space where we can join our thoughts on two so interesting topics. Both books coming out May 26th in the UK. Mine is coming out a little later in the US, but you can pre-order anywhere in the world already. Dutch is coming out 30th of May for my book. And um, as always, I invite you to come here and join us for conversations that will just ask you to slow down and find an hour to reflect on a topic you may have not thought about before or to reflect on a topic differently. I hope you enjoyed our conversation on yoga today. Share it with others, especially those who may benefit from looking at yoga in a different way. I've been honored, honestly, Nadia. It's you, been an absolute pleasure. You, Enjoy. You, yoga activist and gangster. <laughs> Thank you for joining me today. Thank you all for joining. I'd like to remind you as always that it doesn't matter how busy you are today. There's always a tiny little bit of time to slow down while you're at it. Why don't you just like the podcast and give it a five stars or join the YouTube channel? They always tell me to remind you to do this because somehow you forget. I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.